Welcome to Kurt Vonnegut's, the podcast dedicated to the life and works and ongoing things of Kurt Vonnegut, because he's the greatest author of all time. My name is Alex Schmidt, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Michael Swain. Howdy, howdy, howdy. Hey. Hey. Ah, feels so strange. What? I don't know. <laughs> this could be... Because we're recording in a different place? We are recording in a different that place? That must be the only thing to which you refer. <laughs> I love doing this show, and this uh, is the last one we have planned. I do, too. Why do you bring a what? (laughs) Gosh, darn it. But we have a heck of a book to talk about, and so maybe we have fun with that and have a good time. He didn't write a zombie series of posthumous books, no, that (laughs) we can just keep going with, no? We could find some slash fic online, man. Come on, I need yeah. this. <laughs> we we just write further Kurvanaga exactly. novels as ourselves. Well, the book for today is called A Man Without a Country, and it was published in 2005. Wow, 2005. That's not even that long ago. Yeah, two years before his death, so he was writing right up to the end. I guess not pen in hand up to the end, but <laughs> as I hope to be, I want to be right. I want to be like finishing a manuscript. Yeah. Period heart attack. That's how I want to go. Man Without a Country is our book today, and let's get into how it came about with a segment called Franken Time. This is a segment where, especially with an essay collection like this, because this is an essay collection, we talk about how that came into being. Because with a novelist, you know, why do they sit down and do an essay collection? Crazy. Mm -hmm. Who can think of it? It seems like he basically wrote it because George W. Bush was elected president. It's crazy how much bad stuff, like (laughs) Trump is so, we can't do this on this podcast, but it's blanked my mind. But I'm like, I remember, oh yeah, it was the WMD Iraq thing, see? I was like, so much shit has happened since then. (laughs) What was bad about him? That's right. There was some real yeah. bad stuff. So, like, yeah, it was during the whole uh, Iraq war and us finding out that Colin Powell had either lied or been misinformed right. about there being WMDs there, uh, which Vonnegut comments on heavily, interspersed with essays on other topics, though. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and he uh, he had been reached out to by the editors and publishers of a Chicago alt-weekly called In These Times, which is still around. Yeah, and the it's editor... real cuck rag. <laughs> Classic <laughs> libtard SJW bullshit. Right. We've gone full Pepe as hosts, <laughs> and we oppose these people. Um, uh, the editor then and now is Joel Blyfus, and he worked with Vonnegut to do essays for In These Times. And then uh, from there, the editor at a publisher called Seven Stories Press, Dan Simon, said, hey, why don't you turn these into a whole book? And Vonnegut was like, great, I will combine those with some screen printing I do and some other things. And then we got an essay collection. Here we go. Vonnegut was still writing uh, throughout the rest of his years, but he had done his last novel, Timequake, years before that. And then he also had had some health trouble uh, right at the start of the new millennium. His ashtray flipped over in bed and caused a fire in his apartment, oh and he was hospitalized with smoke inhalation and then recuperating in Massachusetts. And I feel like he really, really got ramped up to write again, mainly because he just really didn't like George W. Bush so much. Also, Vonnegut did promotion for it around town, and it was a bestseller, and he also went on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart oh, in wow. September of 2005. So look that up. That's yeah. fun. And that clip's on Comedy Central. We'll, we'll link to it. It's great. Yeah. Uh, it's fun. At this age, he's a really great reader of his material because his voice is fully mature, and he's got like that old man charm. Yeah. So you can find a lot on YouTube of this publicity tour where he reads sections of this book. It's a fun way to experience some of it. 
And it's cool. And I, I also feel like it's just exciting to hear someone who we've been reading from the 1950s to mm -hmm. now, like, oh, suddenly he knows about Donald Rumsfeld and, and uh, like, incredibly modern things. Yeah, Very this exciting. is it. This is the time to compare. Like, this man wrote Player Piano, which we read a scant, <laughs> what, one year? I don't even know how long we've been doing this, but less than yeah. a year ago. And now we've zoomed all the way to 2005. It's the same brain, the same guy. Yeah. That's interesting. I didn't even put that together. Like, man, what a long span <laughs> we've covered. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. And let's look at what he wrote here with a segment called Essay Time. Okay, if oh, we must, but, 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 but I'd rather not. <laughs> what, do you, what do you mean you'd rather not? I'm developing a character to help me emotionally deal with the end of the show. <laughs> See, Michael idea. said the show's ending. But Logan hates the show and is excited for it to end. <laughs> well, Cliff, yeah. who is me. Hi, Cliff. <laughs> uh, it's sort of like a the movie crank concept where if we don't get to the end of the show, my heart explodes. Nice. So we got to do this. Okay. Yeah. Well, let's press I'm on. I'm Statham-ing up. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> this is uh, how we'll just go through each essay in the book. And I think also it will turn into a sub-segment called Vana Art. Whoa, segments. Whoa, everyone knows that segments are good. Yes, they do. Because this book is interspersed with a lot of Vonnegut art, mainly him handwriting his own most famous quotes onto posters that mm -hmm. I think at the time you could buy from his uh, printing partner in Lexington, Kentucky. So let's get into the book. We open with a uh, first part after the title page, which is a hand-drawn version of Vonnegut's quote about hoping that angels are organized along the lines of the mafia, which is one of my just favorite Vonnegut mm -hmm. things. And I feel like we keep running into that throughout the book. He'll just keep taking one of the most important things he's ever said and handwrite it on a giant poster. It's great. And then from there, we get into, there's a chapter list, illustration list, and the book breaks out into 12 chapters, and then a requiem, and then a author's note where he talks about his own posters. Yeah, and each chapter is just named after the first title of the essay. Yeah. Like a poem or an author who's too old to care what his things are titled anymore. <laughs> um, so part, essay one is just called As a Kid I Was the Youngest, because that's the beginning. As a kid, I was the youngest kid in my family is the right. first clause of the thing. <laughs> Uh, and it basically covers, I mean, a lot of the book felt to me like he knew it was his last book. Yeah. I coupled with commentary on George W. Bush. Because, man, if you want to just, if you're like, want the TLDR version of Kurt Vonnegut's entire ethos, yeah. just read Man Without a Country. There's even sections where he takes multiple of his big hit quotes and puts them together in a chunk where they all work. You're like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I'm sure we'll blurt some of them. But I'm not going to repeat all the things that if you've listened to the rest of the podcast, you've like gotten the sentiment. But he's really distilled it down even more so, I would say, than we've said that about previous books. And this is the ultimate yeah. like, bouillabaisse, Vonnegut, just like <laughs> freebase it. What is a bouillabaisse? Uh, it's it like not something you would freebase. I know that. <laughs> Uh, there is soup addicts. Yeah, don't around. inject or smoke <laughs> bouillabaisse. I know yeah. that. Um, it's probably safer than what people do freebase. Anyway, back yeah. to the topic at hand. <laughs> um, so essay one, and a lot of it's autobiographical interwoven with these quotes. So essay one, he's the youngest kid, and he talks about how uh, he thinks that's what made him a jokester because you have to get attention from a large family. Yeah, yeah. And it, yeah, and especially jokes as a response to fear. And he thinks that's a key thing. Right. And he'll talk more about humor in that way, too. He goes on to say, yeah, right. His his theories of humor, he thinks humor comes from tragedy. That's why he likes Laurel and Hardy. But he thinks Bob Hope 
won't really stand the test of time um, because he refuses to comment on anything objectionable. And he says he worked on a TV show that was like a sketch comedy show. And he doesn't name it or I would have dug into it and found out what it was. But he said their one rule was every piece had to be referenced like the inevitability of death in some way. (laughs) Their theory being that the audience would subconsciously find it funnier for that reason. And I don't know if that worked, but it certainly explains his sense of humor throughout his books. (laughs) (laughs) I hope the show turns out to be like way too ham-fisted with that. Like it's Saturday night death. It's (laughs) just always sketches of the Grim Reapers there. (laughs) (laughs) With your host, death. (laughs) (laughs) Musical guest. Illness. (laughs) (laughs) Illness. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, it ends on uh, like a case in point, which we've heard before. And he used it as a scene in Slaughterhouse Five. He says, case in point, it was a great defense against tragedy and a great service when we were in that bunker in Dresden. And we heard millions of bombs killing everyone that some unnamed soldier in the silence said. I wonder what the poor people are doing tonight. Which I guess is something you used to say if you were like sitting around in the alley drinking beers in your shirt sleeves. And also going into that chunk, he quotes Bokonon, which is also quoting himself. He does, oh, a lion hunter in the jungle dark and a sleeping drunkard up in Central Park and a Chinese dentist and a British queen all fit together in the same machine. Nice, nice, such very different people in the same device. Bokonon. Yep. And then going into the next chapter, he quotes uh, Bokanon again, but that time, this time, like without attributing it to Bokanon, it's just him, uh, which is I want which it all. Which is fair. He he wrote everything that Bokanon says. Yeah, he's the whole uh, guy. He's allowed. He's yeah. not like plagiarizing his character. <laughs> I'm putting Vonnegut on blast. <laughs> yeah. He stole from himself. Um, he said, "I wanted all things to seem to make some sense, so we could all be happy. Yes, instead of tense. And I made up lies, so they all fit nice. And I made this sad world a paradise." And I think that's fair. It applies to Bokanon and to Kurt Vonnegut. What do you got? Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you're going to have to stay on top of the silk screens. I have commentary all about them at the end, but I didn't note, like, where they're peppered in. Oh, yeah. I can. Yeah, I'll I'll have For sure, yeah. Uh, And that takes us to number two. Yeah. Do you know what a twerp is? (laughs) Which is a rude, the answer, that question doesn't really matter. Again, it's just incidentally the first sentence. Um, But the answer is bizarre. And he's mentioned it two or three times in the course of his whole life. Yeah. Uh, in his mind, twerp meant someone who puts false teeth in their butt cheeks yeah, and then rides taxi cabs and pulls down their pants and uses their butt cheeks to bite the buttons off the seats of the taxi cabs. Right. I don't know what crazy uncle <laughs> told Kurt Vonnegut this when he was seven. Like how I was told dork means whale's penis, and that has, you can look it up, and it does. I cannot find anyone who defined twerp, as, like the lingo twerp, to mean this bizarrely specific thing. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> I think he just knew a guy who was quite a guy. But yeah. That's all I can figure out. Yeah. I, I don't know. Because <laughs> well, they are. And it's come up before, it, I think, yeah. I want to say Palm Sunday. It yes. came up too, yeah. And this is our first instance of uh, player hating. If you consider George W. Bush a player. Um, Because basically he says... That's your way into talking about Bush. Yeah. The ultimate player. Everyone knows who I'm talking about. Yeah. Slick Georgie. (laughs) So he's basically, he's saying you're a twerp if you... There's a little political stuff peppered throughout, and but then it largely segues to you're a twerp if you haven't read or heard all of my favorite books and pieces of music. Oh, sure. And the general thrust of section two is name-dropping stuff. It's like things Kurt Vonnegut would want you to read or hear before you die. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he picks out a Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge by Ambrose Bierce, which is an amazing short story. He also says something that 
I couldn't necessarily verify, but he said that when Karl Marx said that religion is the opiate of the masses, Marx meant that positively. He meant that, oh, we live in an era when opium is like the best painkiller for surgery and other important things. And religion is very, very important, like good painkillers. Well, a neutral. I mean, he calls it a banal dictum. Meaning like, oh, yeah, he, yeah. like it, he was just saying, like opium, yeah. religion eases the pain of masses of poor people when their lives are hard. Right. That's true. You could either <laughs> argue further whether the side effects are worth it or it's good or bad. But Vonnegut's contention is that that's all Marx was saying and that that has been twisted to mean very specifically, I'm a very smarmy atheist <laughs> and religion is stupid. You're stupid for, you know, like right. it's been co-opted by basically I would call obnoxious anti-religious sentiment. Yeah. (laughs) He also calls out, uh, just in case people want to take his word for it and do a little Vonnegut recommendation tour, Sophisticated Lady by Duke Ellington, the piece of music. He thinks uh, Democracy in America, the classic by Alexis de Tocqueville, is something you that will make you understand how America works, what's wrong with it and what's right about it. Yeah. Camus, he likes Camus. He name name, name drops Carl Sandburg. Lincoln, of course, Eugene V. Debs, like people you'd predict, as well as some new ones. Powers half good. Uh, yeah. And then, as you said, argues for socialist idealism and complains that he wasn't taken seriously enough because he was a sci-fi writer, <laughs> which is one of his favorite old saws to like harp on to yeah. make some metaphors. Yeah, this book, it really moves uh, topic-wise. Sometimes he will just jump into a whole nother subject, and it's it's thought through. Like, it's not crazy or anything. It's just, uh, it really skips along. The so, chunks segue well, but I don't understand sometimes why he chose, like, this is the end of part seven, and this is the beginning of part eight. Right. And he just picks up talking about the same topic again. Like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. But all the time. Topics are very good. <laughs> yeah. Like, like at the end yeah. of this chunk, he's saying that he clarifies that actually the Dresden bombing was a British atrocity, not an American one. And mm-hmm. it's like, why? Oh, now we're on this? Okay, sure. All right, cool. Yeah. But <laughs> if, you've, if you've been following with us, there's also so many flashbacks. Like he tells the story of how Slaughterhouse-Five got the subtitle Children's Crusade again, which I'm not going to say because we said it before. Yeah. And stuff like that. So there's some like, again, yeah. it's a condensation of his biggest hits. Yeah. Like oil is a drug and Midwesterners are fresh water people. His favorite metaphors. Uh, It's a great panorama of all his favorite metaphors, yeah. And then uh, the next piece of poster is he says, funniest joke in the world. Last night I dreamed I was eating flannel cakes. When I woke up, the blanket was gone. Disagree, moving on. Yeah, not. Yeah, it's not, not that good. Anyway, uh, chapter three is uh, where Carl he... Tart did this extended bit on Bang Bang. It was better than the joke you just read. <laughs> For one example. <laughs> Look up that bit. I yeah, actually, sure and also the one part. about the one about the white stuff in bird shit is also bird shit. That's, that's way he thinks that's And he thinks the guy getting his balls hit from yeah. the rafters. He likes bad jokes. Well, he, yeah, he I think with jokes fine. and also with epitaphs, he likes to be. This is the one, like frequently. <laughs> oh, yeah, sure. he, he's not a picky about like consistency I he, with. That. I think he's an amazing epitaph writer. A lot of his epitaphs really hit me. Yeah, not the jokes so much. He uh, he leads off chapter three with his old line about semicolons being transvestite hermaphrodites. <laughs> and uh, yeah, you know, well, <laughs> and then immediately follows up. it up by repeating another one he's re- said before that if you really want to hurt your parents and you don't have the courage to be gay, yep, be in the arts. Yep, yep, yep. Moving on, uh, we'll get to it. And uh, he and oh, also and then repeats he says, the idea about your soul grows by doing art. And then he talks about how he studied anthropology and says, I think probably the most problematic line, which he hasn't said before. 
But I hated studying primitive peoples. They're just so stupid. <laughs> Jesus, man. Yeah, that That's one. like his shithole countries remark. <laughs> <laughs> we can, w- with that one also, it felt like, it felt like he was doing a character with that one specifically, not the other ones, but he was well, doing. Well, his only defense is he also thinks modern humans are even stupider. Like he thinks yeah. we've only gotten stupider with time. So that's his only real, like, <laughs> get out of that argument. Yeah. Yeah, that too. And he also then does his uh, thing that he initially did mostly in Palm Sunday where he charged out stories as a line graph. story graphs. Um, and he adds a little bit to it, mostly looking at Hamlet. This is like a concert where you're like, don't worry, bro, he's going to play the full album. He said he was going to. <laughs> it's like, boom, story graphs, boom. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it al- as I was reading it, uh, partly because we do this, I was almost thinking like, is he, did he write a podcast about the works of Kurt mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like it's sort yeah. of, <laughs> it's sort of a rundown of everything. It's great. Yeah. Uh, he does add a new wrinkle to his story graphs, which is that he uses them to try and argue that Hamlet sucks, which I don't think he did in Palm Sunday. Right, Hamlet's the new, yeah. Yeah, because the line is perfectly horizontal, which is to say, Hamlet, everything that happens to Hamlet, and I'm going to take you through the arguments, but trust us, he's right. Um, <laughs> there's no way to tell if it's good news or bad news. It's a unique story in that the pieces in play make it such that you, the audience, are like, well, he did that. I can't predict easily if that will be good or bad in the next scene because he himself is so indecisive just a bunch of stuff is happening and you're like it was a good Polonius died what will change because of this I don't know yeah uh, and he says it just goes to show that that's how life is you know you never know we know so little about life and cause and effect that you never know what's good news and bad news you'll sort of just react to something that's viscerally painful and uh, be like oh I'm sure this was bad in my life and then <laughs> five years later your life could be better and you don't know if it had something to do with that bad thing you don't know right um my oh my point against it is I feel like he's just slightly taking credit for Shakespeare's point because he's saying <laughs> uh, Shakespeare sucks and tripling down on the problematicness. <laughs> he says, I have just proven that Shakespeare is as bad a storyteller as any Arapaho. I didn't know Arapahos were famously bad. <laughs> I actually thought native peoples were considered excellent storytellers. I believe – a lot of tribes have storyteller as like a position in the tribe. <laughs> uh, but that aside, um, he's saying like, see, Shakespeare didn't know what he was talking about because really life is blah, blah, blah. And I'm yeah. saying that's what Hamlet – you got that from Hamlet. That's why the plot is structured that way. And Hamlet's fatal flaw is indecision. Shakespeare is – Saying what you're saying before you said it, and you're saying he didn't mean it, what he should have said is, and I'm like, you're doing that thing in the movie where, like, someone says an idea, no one hears them, and you go, yeah, yeah, how about I quote that guy's idea? (laughs) And then everyone's like, the second person was right. They're brilliant. Not that that people don't give (laughs) Shakespeare enough credit, but I just think he tries to pretend that Hamlet is, like, a poorly told story, and I think... It actually just shows that Shakespeare is getting at the same point that he's getting at. He could have made that same giving self-credit move with uh, something like Metamorphosis, because he also does Kafka's Metamorphosis in these graphs, and just makes that a a line from bad to way worse immediately. (laughs) I like that one. He could have just as easily have been like, Metamorphosis was supposed to be a normal story, and that guy screwed up, and I know why. You know, He could have easily done that, too. So I don't know why he does it with Hamlet. Like, leave, uh, leave Willie alone. 
Or he could have been joking. <laughs> Why? Well, I, I don't think he was. I, I do think he was joking with like calling primitive culture stupid a little earlier in the chapter. Or when he I says, I've like just proven like Shakespeare a... sucks at telling stories, I think that's a joke. Or it's at least a little yeah. tongue in cheek. Yeah, it's a little tongue in cheek. Or yeah. he's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Going into the next chunk of art, it's a poster that says the quote, I don't know about you, but I practice a disorganized religion. I belong to an unholy disorder. We call ourselves Our Lady of Perpetual Astonishment. And I don't and think that's a repeat. Four. And that's I think that's a new, new. one. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. There, there is a, a solid chunk of this book that is new. Sure. Like, he's repeating so much of what he does, but especially, uh, obviously, the Bush stuff and also some other new things, like talking about Hamlet. Yeah. Number four, <laughs> I'm going to tell you some news is what it's called because that's the beginning of it. And the news is that he's going to sue Paul Mall because he's been chain smoking his whole life and he thought he would die sooner. Yeah. It's a funny bit. <laughs> um, he gives you a brief rundown of his drug history, which is that he was pretty straight edge his whole life, but he's since he was 12, chain-smoked cigarettes continuously. <laughs> uh, then he hates on Bush and the war on drugs and the war in Iraq yeah, and the evils of fossil fuels. And we've at length gone through his thoughts on that. And there, this yeah, is a, yeah. basically a recap. I still agree a thousand percent, but yeah, <laughs> likening it to a, an addiction to a drug, blah, blah, right. blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Like we're collectively addicted to gasoline because it lets us zip around in cars and build a, a lot of things that we couldn't otherwise build. And we're going to crash at some yeah. point is his point here and previously. Yeah. I thought the notable point for me was that it's so grim. As I said, as a person who can be prone to depression, I have to gird myself against like, I have to go like, no, no. He must be wrong because, man, he, he really doubles down on, like, everyone should just give up. Yeah, um, yeah. So he ends this section with, all lights are about to go out. No more electricity. All forms of transport will stop, and the planet Earth will have a crust of skulls and bones and dead machinery. Nobody can do anything about it. It's too late in the game. It's rough. Bye, Kurt Vonnegut. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. He's pretty throughout this book. Maybe the biggest point, even beyond Bush or the end of his life, is that the earth will not continue to sustain he, us, which he's said before and he really hammers. He you. thinks we were past the tipping point of global warming already in 2005. Like at the time that he was dying, right. he was like, they aren't going to sort this out. They're <laughs> fucked. Prove me wrong, kids. Prove Let's do me it. wrong. Let's do it. Listeners. <laughs> Let's do it. Listeners. Number five. Uh, yeah. The art going in is evolution is so creative. That's how we got giraffes. Mm-hmm. It's fun. I think it's new too. Yeah. And uh, chapter five, he gets into a lot of things he's done before about uh, our need for extended families as people, and also his thing he said before about women and men having very different wants with that. Even though I think we've talked about that's not really uniformly true. Well, this is where he just lines up the hits. So the, what I was saying, where he like will segue three things from different books that all sit well next to each other. Yeah. So he goes like, boom. <laughs> Men want people not to be mad at them, and women want lots of people to talk to. Boom, divorce is on the rise because no one has extended families. Boom, wouldn't you want to be an Ebo baby? They do have extended families. So you're like, this is a, this, you're Star Wars episode sevening this shit. This is cut and paste from three different of your previous books. <laughs> this is the BB 8 of Cutting oh, Books. And then, boom, talking about losing his German roots as they move to America. He's covered that as well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, his family being heavily German, and even his wife, feeling like that was different from her Anglo thing mm -hmm. and that changing. And I did think the, an interesting point he brought up that he hasn't before is Germans who emigrated to the U.S. right before World War I are in an extremely unique position historically because in their historic legacy, the ethno group that they claim left Germany before World War I or II, so they do not feel guilty about the Holocaust because their whole family tree was in America before that was even building steam. Right. 
And yet they got here just after <sighs> slavery was abolished. So they also don't feel guilty about slavery, the Indian genocide. Yeah. And he was like, they were these weirdly like guiltless white. I guess it's not weird <laughs> to be a white person who feels no guilt, but it should be but in America. Right. But he was like, but they genuinely were like, we've never hurt anyone. We just like <laughs> sausages and leader holes. And- right. They've just constantly worn suspenders and eaten good, right. good foods and beers. Unless and you go it. back to Viking times, everyone was killing everyone in that area. But right. Oh, yeah. yeah. And the, the wars of religion were terrible. <laughs> sure. And, you know, all that. Sure. But, but the modern, that. they yeah. like, they narrowly avoided <laughs> the two big modern atrocities. Yeah. And then the next chapter from there, the art going in is, we are here on earth to fart around. Don't let anybody tell you different. Yeah. And this chapter is all about being a Luddite. And it's all, it's a, uh, almost a shaggy dog story. It's, it's Kurt talking about, oh, people love computers. Well, guess what? I love to walk down to the, where I buy a letter. Then where I walk down to the post office. Then where I wander around town. Then where I talk to people. Isn't that better than email? Right. Like, and, he's like, and then my wife says, why didn't you just do an email when I get home? And I go, hush, all condescendingly. <laughs> this is the implication. Oh, hush. Boom, hush, boom. Ned Ludd broke looms and whatnot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's player piano. He's still, so that's an interesting through line that's never left. His time at GE and seeing people invent new kinds of bombs while he was a young man makes him think technology bad. He's on that side firmly and he has not changed that opinion. Yeah, Yeah, that's true. Over 80 years of life and And he was still like, nah. Even technologies we would call good because they increase our capabilities, he finds bad because he feels that humans should be the only kid. Like he says, Bill Gates has said, wait till you see what your computer will become in 100 years. You should be the one becoming. Humans should be. I'm like, that's very eloquent, but I enjoy all of the tasks that I don't have to do because my computer <laughs> does them personally. Like, he doesn't even really like typewriters. He says Huck Finn was the first typewritten novel. Interesting factoid. And then, like you said, well, yeah, yeah, talks about how he appreciates writing his pages and mailing them in a manila envelope and ogling the lady at the post office. <laughs> right, yeah. Well, also, I'm, and I'm realizing that, like, this show is a product of multiple technologies that he probably found irritating. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, this, well, that's the only way we could bring this to you. Folks. In it, he says, electronic <laughs> communities build nothing. You wind up with nothing. Oh, no. And that is his one-star review of this podcast <laughs> <Yeah>. on iTunes. <laughs> That's all it says. <laughs> well, he'd like this. Anyway, <laughs> um, next art from there is, do you think Arabs are dumb? They gave us our numbers. Try doing long division with Roman numerals. Yeah. Boom. Which, which is a relatively new boom, I think. It's a new boom. I guess, but I'm still like, if someone comes up to me quickly, it's like, you think Mandarin Chinese are stupid? Well, I'll tell you something. I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Who said anyone's stupid? Like, you're bringing that in here. (laughs) But that's a weird way to start. Look, everyone thinks Arabs are dumb, right? Right, right? Okay. You might be surprised to learn. It's like, no, you're the asshole. (laughs) But he means it in a nice way in the sense that at that time, as there is now, there's a lot of xenophobia for Arab people. And he's probably trying to undermine that. Like, I'm busting his balls, but. Well, because a lot of times in this book, I think of Steve Martin's stand-up. Like, when Steve Martin's doing stand-up, oftentimes he'll do Steve Martin quotes in the air around it, who is mad at the people in the booth for not letting him be famous enough. When in actuality, he's just a nice guy. And and like, that's the art he's doing. Exactly. I think I think Vonnegut at times is doing that. Like he's doing this to make fun of George W. Bush. He doesn't and like I think hate that those people. He was living in an environment where he probably thought there was too much hate for Arab and like too much Islamophobia as well. And yeah. So he's t- so like his intentions are good. Yeah, Clumsy yeah. phrasing. <laughs> <laughs> and in this chapter he says he turned eighty two years old in yep. two thousand and four, which is uh, good for him. 
And he talks about how that feels and then uh, works in the Mark Vonnegut line about we're here to help each other get through this thing, whatever it is. Uh, he does a new epitaph for himself. A very which, good one. Which is the only proof he needed for the existence of God was music. And he does a very long spiel about the unforgettable, invaluable legacy of black blues music in America and then worldwide. Because yeah. R&B, hip-hop, rock and roll, oh, jazz all grew out of that. And yeah. he thinks music is one of the only things that makes people fonder of life than they would otherwise be. Along with its artistic legacy, also picks out, he feels it's specifically powerful as like a palliative and like a way to deal with being alive. Well, then he does, he goes, I think, too far when he then talks about how he goes, hey, just just stab, just stab in the dark here, but I think that's why, and this is statistically accurate, fewer slaves committed suicide than slave masters. It's probably because they could play the blues and it shooed the <laughs> sadness away. And uh, and and then, like, to back up that point, he runs it by another old white friend of his. Like, don't you think that's why slaves <laughs> right. didn't? I'm like, here, this is not an area you should be speculating into. Like, it's just weird. Yeah, it's pretty, yeah. And that's not like a good sounding Like, you could have just said, board. I love blues and jazz. You didn't have to go into, like, socio theories about why. Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> Yeah, and he also, this chapter uh, focuses a lot on Lincoln and the Gettysburg Address, and at one point picks out midway through the chapter that the chapter is already longer than the entire Gettysburg Address, and he calls himself Windy for going on that long. He says, imagine what Lincoln and, and Twain would have to say today, oh my goodness, about Bush. And of <laughs> course, I'm like, imagine what Carvana would have to say today, a short 10 years later. I think that, because yeah, I think that came up at, I want to say it was our live episode about Palm Sunday. Somebody yeah. asked like, what would Vonnegut think of all this? And probably like, that he, he was right. He'd probably be like, yeah. yep, yeah, I was right. Because he, he died in 2007, <laughs> so he just barely missed Obama and Trump. Those yeah. are probably the two big headlines of what he missed. Then he would spread his wings and fly away. Yeah. Like WV. <laughs> Be like, yep. And then also he brings up global warming again, this time saying, quote, the biggest truth to face now, which is making me unfunny, is that I don't think people give a damn whether the planet goes or not. I know few people who are dreaming of a world for their grandchildren. Give up now. (laughs) (laughs) I added the last three words, but the rest is a quote. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, there's multiple times in this book he just stops and says, you know, everyone's going to die. Yeah, cloak that seal. (laughs) Burn that carbon. It doesn't matter. We're fucked. It's over anyway. Next chapter, the art leading in is is the quote, the highest treason in the USA is to say Americans are not loved no matter where they are, no matter what they're doing there. That's real true and gets truer and truer. And then he uh, leads this chapter eight uh, by repeating his, a lot of his humanism stuff and also about Isaac Asimov's funeral and the joke he did about Isaac is in heaven now and all the humanists find it hilarious. Uh, we get his classic all-time number one single, Without the Sermon on the Mount, I'd Rather Be a Rattlesnake Than a Human. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then we get a new Vonnegut metaphor that I think was my favorite one in the book, which is an extended analogy, I guess, more than a metaphor, that saying the world's leaders have always, for the most part, been great guessers. Yes, my and, favorite, too. Yeah. My favorite, too. Yeah. Yeah. Great in the sense that we say Great Depression, like very impactful guessers. It could be good or bad. Like they could be right or wrong. And as he says, their guesses could lead to good or bad outcomes of a grand scale. They don't know and no one knows. But we (laughs) gravitate around them because they pretend to know and it makes life seem sensible 
or like good and bad luck that befalls you is the result of cause and effect or something that could be approached and figured out logically. And he says, that's bullshit. And these people who are delusional psychopaths who don't have the ability to care what the results of their actions are on other people naturally gravitate to to positions where they're like, I'm willing to guess what will happen next for profit (laughs) and have people gather around me and tell me how great I am. And that by a slow but sure process of like psychopathic people are drawn to money and power after time passes, guess where all the money and power is concentrated in the hands of genuinely psychopathic people who have a mental illness where their consciences and ability to realize that they might be wrong are stunted. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, it's great. It's my favorite part of the whole book too. I think he almost could have turned this concept into a whole novel if if he tried to frame something around it, I think. The theme of a novel for sure, Yeah. yeah, yeah. The main thing about these guessers is they care more that they are believed than whether their guesses turn out to be accurate. And this is so prescient. And he said, so now and even increasingly in the future, we will see organizations at the highest level rebel against the idea that facts can be nailed down. Right. (laughs) And he said this in 2005, and he died in 2007. So he didn't know the freight train that was coming, the fake news freight train and the Russian bots and shit. (laughs) And he was already like... It's very clear to me that science is getting better and better at telling us what's really going on. There will have to be a backlash of powerful people saying science and facts don't exist because the only reason you trust a scientist or a politician over a scientist is the politician pretends like they know what's going to happen in the future. And as that sheen wears off, they have to just like tell you, don't listen to the scientists. (laughs) And that's definitely happening. Yeah, and I think and I think that freight train really would have bowled him over if he was alive for it. Because like yeah. when we read um, Bates Worse Than Death, there's a chunk where he talks about George H. W. Bush, and he says that the Willie Horton ad that George H. W. Bush ran on against Dukakis in I think '88 was the low point of American politics. It was the worst thing that had ever happened right. in he our says political the lives. Willie Horton ad's the most racist thing you can ever expect to see. Like the lowest a politician will sink. You're yeah. Like, yeah. Good and, thing you died right after saying that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So like, yeah, the the further politics we got, I think he 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 would have been like, yeah, I saw that coming. And it also really would have hit him hard. I think. And he, he wouldn't have been like ready, you know? Yeah. yeah. If you'll indulge me, I'd love to read a pretty long quote. Do it, do it. Because it's my favorite section, yeah. The poor have done something very wrong or they wouldn't be poor, so their children should pay the consequences. That's correct. The United States of America cannot be expected to look after its own people. That's correct. The free market will do that. That's correct. The free market is an automatic system of justice that is infallible. That's correct. I'm kidding. (laughs) And if you actually are an educated thinking person, you will not be welcome in Washington, D.C. I know several bright seventh graders who will not be welcome in Washington, D.C. Do you remember those doctors a few months back who got together and announced that it was a simple, clear medical fact that we could not survive even a moderate attack by hydrogen bombs? They were not welcome in Washington, D.C. Even if we fired the first salvo of hydrogen weapons and the enemy never fired back— North Korea, the poisons released would probably kill the whole planet by and by. What is the response in Washington? They guess otherwise. What good is an education? The boisterous guessers are in charge, the haters of information. And the guessers are all highly educated people. Think of that. They have had to throw away their educations. If they didn't do that, there is no way their uninhibited guessing could go on and on and on and on. Pretty Just good. amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he really he uh, uh, this this is where it sings. This book really gets going here. Yeah, yeah. It, it was good before that too. But like, yeah, and it has the title. It's the title track, I guess, because he says, "And therefore, I am a man without a country." Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he also says, uh, 
this feels especially aimed to depress me. Twain and Einstein gave up on humanity at the era end of their lives. Who are we to not? Yeah. <laughs> Don't say well, yeah. stuff like that. <laughs> and he picks out that Twain gave up and the First World War hadn't even happened. Like yeah. the, the really gross stuff that was really visually documented too hadn't right. even come along. And if we're now like, well, yeah, now Abu Ghraib and uh, cops right. shooting on our black men and stuff, but we still don't want to give up, he would just laugh and laugh at us. He'd yeah. be like, give up. It's, you could give up. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, and there's other rapid fire stuff about Bush and Iraq. And he also rounds it off with a, a story about a hero of his. Ignaz Semmelweis. Yes, and you should tell the story, but I do want to say preface it by saying, let's see, what is, this is a real bummer. What, what can I, something good, something hopeful? <laughs> and he goes like, this isn't that hopeful, but here's this. <laughs> yeah, because it's a story about this doctor who was pushing for people to wash their hands and to be aware of basic germ theory in Europe in the 1800s. And he was right, but he was also laughed out of the medical profession and treated horribly. It wasn't until after his death that germ theory became widely accepted, yeah. Yeah, and so he basically had a terrible life in the process of saving a bunch of people and making right. life better for people. And, and so knew Vonnegut, he was right the whole time, yeah. Yeah. Like he knew he was right, yeah. <laughs> and then at the very end of the section, Vonnegut's like, listen, you should be like this guy also, it will be incredibly lonely and difficult. It'll be terrible for you. He said, you should try to be, he said, absolutely, like, Gandhi style, like, you should try to be that great person, be the change you wish to see in the world. You'll probably fail, and, like, it's just a life of misery, but I doff my cap to you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think he ties it to the guessers, too, and and this this guessers section, again, it's, it's like, good. it's one of the best things he's ever written. For sure. At all. And it next, Samwise eventually could only get a job in a morgue because he had his other medical duties stripped from him. And uh, in order to help substantiate germ theory, he took a scalpel he had just finished performing an autopsy with and stabbed himself in the hand and yeah. died of blood poisoning. On purpose. And then his ghost floated up and was like, see, motherfuckers? <laughs> see? <laughs> Samuel Samovice. Next chunk of art going to the next chapter is a Bokonon quote. We do, doodly do, doodly do, doodly do. What well, we must, muddly must, muddly must, muddly must, until we bust, bodily bust, bodily bust, bodily bust. Mm -hmm. Bokonon. <laughs> I was doing a little dance as I said that. That's the one and only cool. like Kurdism that's too cutesy for me. Too cute. I blush yeah, when I read that. It's incredibly yeah. cute. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then he, in the start of this chapter nine, attributes the golden rule, and I think he's taking the text from the Gospel of Luke. He attributes the idea to Confucius 500 years before Jesus was around, and then gets into Eugene Debs and a lot of thought about, oh, why are the kindest Christian values not the things people are putting in courthouses? Why is it exclusively the Ten Commandments or nothing? You know? Right. The ultra, people who pretend to be ultra-Christian will do spearhead these like tearful drives to get the Ten Commandments posted. And then he says, what about the Sermon on the Mount, which is literally considered Jesus's instructions on like what to do. It's his main, <laughs> one of his, it's yeah. his Gettysburg address. Right. But he goes, it wouldn't work. See, blessed are the merciful in a courtroom. Blessed are the peacemakers posted at the Pentagon. Give me a break. Like yeah. it's, they won't do it. Yeah. <laughs> which is a great chunk. It's really good. Uh, rails against the Enron executives who certainly deserved it. Yeah, and, uh, folks remember Enron? Oh, yeah. man, what Con a thing. Continues to prove his case that psychopaths gravitate the, to the top of our power structures. People, he says, who have enriched themselves while ruining their employees and investors and country and feel as pure as the driven snow no matter what anybody says about them. <laughs> yeah. I'm reminded of a New York Times article I just read about a bunch of S San Francisco tech bros who are taking all of their money and going to Puerto Rico to buy as much land as possible. Literally like the evil plan from Galapagos. 
Yep. Like they're going to intentionally of the kick Puerto Rican economy while it's down and like turn it into a haven for their bro-y, programmy bullshit. Yeah. They're calling it Project Atlantis 2.0. And I'm like, Ugh. and no matter what is said about them, they think they're goddamn heroes. Like they think their stupid app is saving the world and like connecting everyone right. so that we'll all be pure souls. It's fucking <laughs> bullshit, man. <laughs> yeah, it's they're mostly just good at not following rules. Yeah. It's like, what if taxi companies also didn't have rules? Like, my, that's the, that's yeah. the whole idea. It's not like good. <laughs> One of my other favorite quotes in the whole book. What has allowed so many psychopathic personalities to rise so high in corporations and government and business is they are so decisive. They're going to do something every fucking day. They're not afraid. Unlike normal people, they are not filled with doubts or indecision for the simple reason that they don't give a fuck what happens next. <laughs> and he hates yeah. technology and he likes books. <laughs> I think As it always. ends on that. Yeah, yeah and he, uh, well, in the previous chapter, he made, he made this a man without a country. And then at the end yeah. of this chapter, he says that the country he loved is still in libraries. Because librarians care about what he did. Number 10. Uh, number 10. Is there art the before it? art going yeah. in is, uh, quote, that's the end of good news about anything. Mm-hmm. Our planet's immune system is trying to get rid of people. This is sure the way to do that. KV, 6 a.m., 11.304. So he also, like, dates this and timestamps it for some yeah. reason. And number 10 is basically, let's open the mailbag. Mailbag it's section. Like, yeah, it's uh, five or six letters or phone calls or conversations with fans it's and his answers. And, and they're interesting. I, I kind of want to blurt most of Do them. It. Yeah, it's the way to go. Oh, okay. Like right when, we, when we sure, blurt. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. And also we uh, we have one or two more essays to get to, but also uh, uh, we've done this a few times in past episodes. We need to throw to a segment called Ad Time. Oh, there is a song for Ad Time. I was wondering. Uh, folks, this episode of Curvana Guys is brought to you with the support of the folks at Casper, which is a sleep brand that continues to revolutionize its line of products to create an exceptionally comfortable sleep experience one night at a time. There are three mattress models, the original Casper, the Wave, and the Essential. Casper mattresses are perfectly designed to soothe and cradle your natural geometry, whichever model you get. Not to mention the breathable design helps you sleep cool and regulates your body temperature throughout the night, and it's delivered right to your door in a small, how-do-they-do-that-sized box with free shipping and returns in the U.S. and Canada. But the best part is that you can be sure of your purchase with Casper's 100-night risk-free sleep-on-it trial. After all, you spend one-third of your life sleeping, so you should be comfortable. And I'm a comfortable fella because I've been given a Casper mattress because I'm very fortunate. And it is a great sleep experience. I'm more rested than ever before, and it really is easy with that box in particular. I can't tell people enough. I got it up very narrow stairs in my place, and it was very easy to do by myself. Not just because I'm very strong. I am, but also... It was easy to do. How does it handle wildly unnatural geometry? <laughs> I'm asking for a friend. <laughs> I'm mostly trapezoids, and it's great. Let's call him A. Schmidt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Let's call him <laughs> S. The Clam. <laughs> <laughs> Start sleeping ahead of the curve with Casper. Get $50 towards select mattresses by visiting casper.com slash Kurt and using Kurt at checkout. K-U-R-T. Read it off a book. It's that easy. That's casper.com slash Kurt. Offer code Kurt. For $50 off your mattress purchase, terms and conditions apply. And thank you, folks. Uh, we thank them for their support. And let's get back to some essays. Cool, cool. I did want to ask, are you going to blurt the really dark one about the guy who was f- pro the uh, preemptive strike against Iraq? Because if you're not going to blurt it, I want to at least mention it. Oh, let's get into it. Yeah, I, I, it felt long to blurt, so let's do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I won't blurt the whole thing. I just thought it was... It was great. W- <laughs> it's pretty, uh, like, he goes ham, I guess, is what the kids would say. Yeah. Um, 
someone writes him a letter basically saying, you know, it, it, it lets me know what Kurt Vonnegut would have been like on Twitter if he had lived long enough. Like, he would not <laughs> yeah. have shied away from, like, owning people. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Because this guy's like, uh, Luke, you talk, you say we shouldn't go in there till we prove there's WMDs, and you're saying even if there are, like, we should wait for some aggression or whatever. I'm for the shock and awe. I'm for the preemptive strike. And you pay me as someone who just wants people to die. That's not true, dude. Here's what I'm saying. If you're walking down the street and you suspect that someone walking towards you has a gun in their pocket, what do you do? Yeah. What would you do? You'd hit them first, right? And, <laughs> and, he go, and he writes back, hey, here's what you should do. I highly encourage you to go to your nearest Walmart, <laughs> buy a shotgun, and blow the heads off anyone in your neighborhood you think might be armed and ever like lose their temper. Yeah. Go, go for it. Go Except for, for it. cops, because yeah. we know they're armed. So right, not right. cops. But, but I'm just everybody like everybody else. <laughs> you'd fucking get arrested for saying that today. You can't right. he explicitly tells the guy to commit a mass shooting. Yeah, yeah. He's like, Oh, you should put your money where your mouth is, man. Shoot some people. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's, we've compared uh, especially late period Vonnegut to late period Carlin or like other particularly dark perspectives. And like, yeah, I'm glad you picked that out because that's maybe the darkest Kurt. Like that's the Spock beard Kurt. Like that's right. like, go kill your neighbors then, right. motherfucker. And like, Carlin would, great. yeah, early Carlin would be like, <laughs> it, it hurts your heart how this much the shit is fucked up. And then late Carlin was like, just kill yourself. Like it was <laughs> yeah, always yeah. critical, but it escalated. Yeah. Right. It just like the the joy kind of faded <laughs> yeah, away. Like it, it eroded like a rock, you know? Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> Good pun. Oh boy, there we it yeah. eroded like a rock. Solid as, as a, a rock. rock. Yep. <laughs> Thank you. Of course the whole thing was covered by the paper. <laughs> <laughs> One of the best puns ever constructed in any format, in my mind. The entire rest of development episode. Geared to get to a rock, paper, scissors pun. Just. Oh, yeah, yeah. Just genius. It's so great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's what he's referencing if people don't know. It's yeah, the best. yeah, yeah. Let's go to uh, the art before chapter 11. Okay. The art is, what is it? What can it possibly be about blowjobs and golf? Martian visitor. And then it will come up in the chapter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which is, uh, the chapter is mostly a chunk of an unfinished attempt at a novel, which Vonnegut would never finish. Uh, they did pub. It's called If God Were Alive Today. And it was an attempt. What if God were alive today? <laughs> do, do, do. This is a novel, dude. Um, he, uh, he tried to write it about a stand-up comedian who is going around as the world ends. And uh, he only, they've published what he had written, which is like a 70-page beginning. And from what I've read of it, it's basically just a comedian saying things that Kurt Vonnegut would say in a lecture. But, on various stages, fictionally. But I would say, so I see why it maybe is okay that it didn't come together, but a stand-up comedian at the end of the world is a great Kurt Vonnegut yeah. premise, yeah. specifically for Kurt. Like, he knows what he does well. I think that would have been good. Uh, yeah. The guy's name was going to be Gil Berman, so we can assume some relation to Sears Berman from Bluebeard, probably. Oh, probably. Yeah. Yeah. I do hope, because it, it's only the early part of the book we've got, and I hope later in the book it would be full apocalypse is happening, right? Like there are meteors landing around his show or something, you know? Right. Or, yeah, I hope it would really go for it. But, and this yeah. is the fourth or fifth time, depending on how you count it, that he says the Martians have landed. They've uh, examined our society for 10 years, and now they're leaving because they don't think global warming is stoppable. He's quintupling down on that <laughs> yeah. prediction. <laughs> Everyone's we will clear. all die of poison air. We get it, Kurt. You're a bummer. <laughs> and, he, and then he sextuples on it by getting a call from Kilgore Trout, 
who says that, yes, the environment's screwed and we're all going to die. And, yeah, and also like, mentions like Bush's latest State of the Union speech. See, the alternate version of me agrees with me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, he posits uh, something that, of course, weaves itself very well throughout Kurt's work, that he's always believed that humans perceive time incorrectly and time is actually, has the Tralfamadorians see it, yeah. a big flat expanse that is all shuffled around. And he just says he likes to think that way because he thinks it's funny because it could mean World War II was caused by World War I, which would make more sense than how World War I really happened because it makes no sense if you look into it. Right, right. Um, and <laughs> that uh, it makes him feel better about how smart some people are. Like when he hears about an Einstein or a Ben Franklin, he's like, they're probably just plagiarizing shit from the future. Or like, <laughs> Like a writer who's better than him, he's like, they're probably just from the future. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's kind of cute. Explained. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then because he was being cute for a second, he catches himself and he says, oh, also weird disease on the planet Earth. And the planet <laughs> Earth is trying to get rid of us. And I think that's good because we're awful. Yeah, it's almost, <laughs> it's almost exactly like the George Carlin special title, You Are All Diseased. Like, it's yeah. almost exactly that, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> He's not the first, nor will he be the last, to compare humans to a disease infecting the planet Earth. It's like, it's yeah. an easy metaphor <laughs> at this point. <laughs> because we're great. Yeah. And uh, he also, there's a piece of art that is not a straight-up poster. It's a classic Vonnegut tombstone drawing, and the epitaph on it is, Life is no way to treat an animal. One of my favorites. Um, and then getting into the next essay, there's uh, another poster of a quote art, which is peculiar travel suggestions are dancing lessons from God, Bokanon, which is another Cat's Cradle reference. And then we get into chapter 12, where he final chapter. complains about not getting a Nobel Prize and says it's because he dealt Swedish cars badly. And uh, uh, kind of repeats some stuff kind he said about Saab Cape Town. Joke. Yeah, it's a yeah. joke. Yeah, yeah. He tells you the anecdotes, which are hilarious, but he said them before. Yeah. Uh, the anecdotes from his time selling sobs and how crappy they were <laughs> and how much he hated it. And they're funny stories, but he said them before, so I'm not going to repeat them. Yeah. And then he tacks on the joke that, of course, I've, also, I've said this all before three books ago. That's why I haven't won a Nobel Prize in literature. Those <laughs> damn Swedes. <laughs> they know I talk shit about sobs. Uh, that transitions into basically a talk about how war isn't sacred. One of the few things he's happy about over the course of his life is that all warm narratives used to be patriotic, bullshit like pablum. And after Vietnam, artists are now free to like, sure, there's Call of Duty, which is still like, yeah, we're great because we killed all the Nazis. <laughs> yeah. Don't think about anything else. Um, but there's also, of course, a whole ton of art about, no, war is a, a like – impossible, incomprehensible tragedy that it's like the worst thing a human could be thrust into. So he's yeah. just glad that people get to say both now or talk about it more openly. Uh, and he uses that to talk about his bad uncle and his good uncle. His bad uncle Dan was the one who said, now that you've been to war, you're a man. And he <laughs> fucking hated He's like, I right. hated him ever since then because I just, to equate those things is so awful to me. Yeah. The funny and, the funny joke is I almost killed my first German. which is really Right, because he never yeah. killed anyone in the war. <laughs> right. And he's German. Right. And then his good uncle Alex, who said, if this isn't nice, I don't know what is our yeah. favorite thing. And yeah, and then he, yeah, he talks about, uh, also says that TV is killing imagination, which is a, a standard Vonnegut belief. Says all media as it advances requires less and less imagination. True, except I would shout out fucking Dungeons and Dragons still going strong. Most create most imagination uh, sparking game there is. Yeah. And then he says his friend Saul Steinberg's the wisest person he ever met and gives several Saul Steinberg quotes that you realize he's used in previous books, but characters said them. Right. So it's like at the end of his life, he's like, by the way, eight of the things I said that were some of the best things I ever said, my buddy said them and I used them. So I just want to <laughs> let you know he's really yeah. smart. 
He said some of that stuff. He's a cool guy. Yeah. Saul Steinberg. It actually, he didn't quite do this, but I really, it would have been a really good prank to end his final book with. Also, I didn't write any of my books with someone else. Right. Like, yeah. Yeah. It's like a pretty good Andy Kaufman yeah. style bit if you want to do it. Earl Canterbury is using me as a beard. <laughs> From there, there's a piece of art, which is a self portrait of Vonnegut on the Saab Cape Cod letterhead. It's that standard side profile you've probably seen if you know uh, drawings yeah. of Kurt. And then he does a Requiem, which is a poem about the Earth's death and us being kicked off. Right, exactly. I think we can read it. It's so short. You want to read the Requiem? Do you have it up? I have it up if you don't. Go for it. The crucified planet Earth, should it find a voice and a sense of irony, might now well say of our abuse of it, forgive them, Father, they know not what they do. The irony would be that we know what we are doing. When the last living thing is died on account of us, how poetical it will be if the Earth could say in a voice floating up perhaps from the floor of the Grand Canyon, it is done. People did not like it here. Postscript. Kill yourself. Give up. (laughs) Kill yourself. I'll see you on the other side of the blue tunnel, bitches. (laughs) Weird postscript for Vonnegut. He was trying to stay with the times, talk like the kids talk, you know. Yeah, he put it to a beat. (laughs) That was pretty strange. Uh, Yeah. Well, and then, he, and then he follows that with another poster of a quote, and this I think is a new one, and it's actually my favorite one of these in it. It is, my father said, when in doubt, castle. And sure. I, I think it's code for what he's doing the entire collection, which is he feels that if he's going to have a last book, he needs to repeat and, and refresh and like almost defensively reiterate all his best stuff. Like that's the use of a last book to him is to be like, this was all the important stuff and also what's going on right now. I know I'm going to die. So Because castling is that move where you get to shove your king behind your defensive line for free, essentially. Yeah, if people know chess. It's it's hunkering down. It's taking your most precious thoughts in this metaphor and hunkering down and building a wall around them. Yeah, Yeah, his thoughts are a rook and he's (laughs) going to be behind them. Yeah, yeah. That's cool. So I, 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 I might be an accident. I don't think it is. I think he nailed it right there. Um, and, uh, then, and then from there, oh, an author's note. Yeah. Sorry. Way, which he's repeated before just saying, Joe, thanking Joe Petro III who silkscreened all this shit. The only side note, if you're like me, a big Ralph Stedman fan, was that he met Ralph Stedman through that because the guy also silkscreened Stedman stuff. And they became friends. So it's cool to think of Vonnegut and Stedman chatting as old, old men. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. I don't know the silkscreen world very well. That's neat, though. Uh, yeah, Ralph Stedman famously did the artwork for Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. And if you remember that artwork, all other artwork that looks like that, like his style's so unique, you know a Stedman, if you know a Stedman. Cool. Uh, and he ends on the advice he said before, that if you look at a million paintings, you'll know which ones are good or bad. And it's nice because then you don't have to have a cohesive theory of art. <laughs> you just know what you like. Yeah. <laughs> and finally, I know this is dumb to do, but I'm going to be a little cheesy because we're wrapping up. I want to read the list of books. Mine was followed with an exhaustive list of books by this author. Oh, look mine how did not. Go fucking far we've come. Player Piano, yeah. Sirens of Titan, and how good is this guy? If this were his <laughs> IMDb page, Canary in a Cat House, Mother Night, Cat's Cradle, God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater, Welcome to the Monkey House, Slaughterhouse Five, Happy Birthday, Wanda June, Breakfast of Champions, Wampeter's Foma and Grand Falloon, Slapstick, Jailbird, Palm Sunday, Dead Eye Dick, Galapagos, Bluebeard, Hocus Pocus, Fates Worse Than Death, Time Quake, Bagambo, Snuffbox. God bless you, Dr. K, and this very book, Man Without a Country. Man. He is the greatest author He's of all time. He's the greatest author of all time. Yeah. He's so good. <laughs> Dickens can't <Man>. beat that. <laughs> no better thing to go from him being the greatest author of all time to looking at some of the ways he is on a micro scale in a segment called Kurt Blurt. Micro Kurt is a Yeah. 
Oh, what? You, you, your voice is an instrument, my friend. I'm that was great. Tiny Kurt. <laughs> People don't know if you've seen Tiny Kurt on our Twitter feed. I'm Tiny Kurt. Talks like this. <laughs> yeah, we have. It's a doll from Unemployed Philosophers Guild. Yeah. And he's just the best. And uh, he is excited about every episode of this. He's like, hey, come enjoy. Yeah. Beer and me. He talks I'm like Tiny that. Kurt. <laughs> yeah. I'm not Pickle Rick. I'm Tiny Kurt. <laughs> what, are some, uh, what are some favorite quotes here? I had, like you said, there's a lot that are repeats from the previous book. So we'll probably try sure. not to hit those too much. I but avoided still those. still a lot. Yeah. Oh my gish gosh, Alex. I have so many in honor of our last episode. I thought I wanted to have way too many. Like I usually, I did in oh. the early days and then I started controlling myself. So I didn't control myself at all. Oh yeah. So I feel like you should do yours, which will eliminate some of mine. And then I'm going to Gatling gun it. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Let's do it. All uh, right. So he, uh, when Vonnegut is talking about Hamlet and its value as a play or not, and he says that the quality of Hamlet, the real great thing about it is the truth in it. It's not the storyline because mm-hmm. it doesn't really go anywhere. And he says it's so true because we don't know what the real good news and bad news is. And then Vonnegut says, quote, and if I die, God forbid, I would like to go to heaven to ask somebody in charge up there, hey, what was the good news and what was the bad news? Yep. <laughs> I, uh, that's a big part of becoming an adult is, I think. Uh, letting go of the idea that you control most aspects of your life. Yeah. yeah when you're real. a kid, you really feel like there's a track. There's no track. It's just a bunch of stuff that happens. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, especially because uh, Kurt blurts himself from Cat's Cradle, like uh, peculiar travel plans or dancing lessons from God. Mm-hmm. I think peculiar everything is that, yeah. honestly. Yeah. The one I did repeat only because, and you've already said it, I just want to ask you a question about it. There's no reason good can't triumph over evil if good will organize along the lines of the mafia. I took that as hopeful at first, but now I'm wondering, does that mean that it takes evil to beat evil and therefore you can never escape evil? Oh. Like angels would have to become mobsters in order to combat mobsters, so we're fucked? Or <laughs> it it could mean that. I don't know. I haven't really thought All of it right. that way. Just trying to bring the room down. No, that's Back a good, to you. Like, it's a good <laughs> <laughs> One thing about because, yeah, I've always taken it as just like if good outworks evil like and organizes evil. Like if you just work evil. harder, yeah. Yeah. It's unclear whether like, he means mafia in the bad way. Right. That is right. <laughs> I guess I was just thinking because like especially in certain uh, versions of the Bible, there's like a lot of very specific canon of like which levels of angels are which. Sure. Them. Yeah. And so I was thinking also like, oh, a mafia family kind of has like levels and made men and you know so yeah. maybe it's like that I don't know you don't send a cherubim <laughs> to do a seraphim's job yeah exactly <laughs> that's from my upcoming script angel cops <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the cops are angels and the mafia yeah. are angels oh, all skin and that. turn in your wings and halo <laughs> flop flop ding um Here's another one. Uh, this is from <laughs> so every time a police station gets blown up, an angel loses their wings. Punk. <laughs> <laughs> I'm also like they they're chasing someone, so they turn on the siren on the oh, halo. They have the halo yeah, like they just starts going. Pew, 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 yeah, yeah it flips around. <laughs> angel cops. 2019. It's gonna take a long time to shoot. <laughs> yeah, it's a, lot of, a lot of effects. I think. Yeah. Well, it's on location in heaven. Oh, we have wow. to die. We're done with the podcast. Right. I thought you knew this. <laughs> <laughs> then we die. And then we make we angel die. cups. Yeah. This, is, uh, this is about when he's talking about being a Luddite and not liking computers. He says, what you can become is the miracle you were born to be through the work that you do. 
which I think works independently of, of all the being frustrated about computers. Too. Yes, it does. And I can delete that from my list. Keep them yeah. coming. <laughs> and then uh, after he talks about puttering through his whole day and mailing uh, mailing some pages, uh, he's there's it's tossed off, but the quote, we are dancing animals. Really like it. Really, really good concept to me. Yes. Uh, to it He's talking about just the social need. Yeah, That's yeah. when he's going to the post like that's office what we and do. stuff. Yeah. yeah. Then when he's talking about turning 82 years old, Vonnegut says, and gravity has become a lot less friendly and manageable than it used to be. Really like that. <laughs> Reminds one of Slapstick a bit. Oh. When on a particular day, gravity became right. much less. It makes me wonder right, in retrospect right, right. if that maneuver in Slapstick was a commentary on how, as you get older, gravity just seems bigger. <laughs> yeah. I hadn't, I hadn't thought of that, actually. Yeah, yeah. I like that. That's um, one of my favorite sci-fi concepts he ever threw out, is like, what if the apocalypse was gravity suddenly triples? It's, I, I've never it's seen great. it used ever before or since. It's really cool. <laughs> yeah. And that it's uh, it's variable, too. Yeah. Like it triples and then it becomes tides, gra- gravitational tides, yeah. Yeah, it's really it's cool. cool. He also, he's talking later about both the war in Vietnam and the second Iraq war, and he says, that war, which is Vietnam, only made billionaires out of millionaires. Today's war, Iraq, is making trillionaires out of billionaires. Now I call that progress. Boom, you got another one from my list. Oh, yeah. I'm going to wipe him out. He sung my blurtle shit. <laughs> blurtle shit. <laughs> this is uh, then uh, chapter eight when he's doing rapid fire frustration with Bush and with Iraq. He also just throws in some facts, and one of them is shrapnel was invented by an Englishman of the same name. Don't you wish you could have something named after you? It's the best line ever. <laughs> Deleted. Very good. Very good. Um, shortly after, <laughs> Shortly after that, napalm came from Harvard. Veritas. <laughs> Really good burn on Harvard. Sorry, yeah. Harvard. I have that. Uh, I'll break in just because I have the beginning of that as a oh, blur too. Yeah, so yeah, there's a bunch there. I now give up on people too. I am a veteran of the Second World War, and I have to say this is not the first time I have surrendered to a pitiless war machine. My last words: Life is no way to treat an animal, not even a mouse. Napalm came from Harvard, Veritas, <laughs> <laughs> which means truth, and is Harvard's slogan. Yeah. So I love that he's also like, he's using their slogan, but it's also a mic drop because he's like, Napalm came from Harvard. Truth. <laughs> I'm out. <laughs> it's great. Yeah. This is uh, when he's talking about, uh, it's in an overall section where he says that the scariest thing is see students from Yale, which is Bush <laughs> and his administration. It's referring to Bush, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and he says, uh, there is a tragic flaw in our precious constitution, and I don't know what can be done to fix it. This is it. Only nutcases want to be president. This was true even in high school. Only clearly disturbed people ran for class president. Okay, well, as class president oh, of no. uh, Ramona High School, 2003-4. Yeah, I was about to apologize a little bit. To... I just want to say I don't know what you're getting at. Let me touch you. <laughs> you grew a tail just then. Okay, yeah. cool. Yeah, I, I, the people who were my class presidents were fine. Uh, I, I was never friends with them, but they were fine. I can uh, imagine that, though. This was a very small school, yeah. Well, and I, I, even, I, I see what he's getting at. I do. I, I also remember those races being, like, weird. The, yeah. the people who were in them really cared, and the rest of us were like, I don't know. All right. <laughs> I don't know if that's always the same everywhere there. No, my school is like, no one cared enough. That's yeah. how I won. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, such a limited position. It's like a pretend. It's just so lame. Right. right. The, the actual gonna, principle, like, runs right. it. What are your campaign slogans? You come up and say, like, you know, I'm going to change the cafeteria. No, you're not. You're not allowed to do anything. It's just a thing. <laughs> right. Like even the principal it's can't do that pageantry. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this is uh, also when in the letter writing section, he gets a letter from a lady asking if she should bring a child into the world. 
And he says that initially he almost said don't. He almost said either practice safe sex or emigrate to a country worth living in, like Canada or Northern Europe. So he said don't bring a child into America. Maybe yeah. maybe Canada. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, then, uh, and then here's what he said next. But I replied that what made being alive almost worthwhile for me, besides music, was all the saints I met who could be anywhere. By saints, I mean people who behave decently in a strikingly indecent society. Which I, I think elements of that might be a repeat, but it's great. It's, it's really para- great. He's paraphrasing himself, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Later in that chapter, he uh, cites Mark Twain's work, Mysterious Stranger, as evidence that Satan, Satan and not God made the earth. And then he ends it by saying, if you doubt that, read your morning paper. Never mind what paper. Never mind which date. <laughs> yeah. Killer. Just great. Well, that's a much longer conversation. It depends whether you believe God necessarily has to be all good, right? Yeah. But, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's yeah. the quintessential problem with the faith in God is, right? The, why is the all this shit exists. happening then? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure there's better people to speak on that than me. And it's me. I'm yeah, the, no, I yeah. don't know. Nobody. This um, is what you should believe. <laughs> <laughs> Mayor Quimby knows. The one true faith <laughs> is our uh, cat's cradle. <laughs> the one from that. Boko Non. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Read your book of Boko Non. <laughs> I think I only have, oh no, two more. Cool. One of them is humor is a way of holding off how awful life can be to protect yourself. It's mm-hmm. not like that elegantly phrased. It's, just, it's interesting. It's an interesting idea. Uh, and then the last one, not too long after, is there have never been any good old days. There have just been days. <laughs> yeah. Great. And uh, yeah, I think that I, I had, I had uh, quite a few here. I think that's it. Yeah. I hope I, I hope right. didn't decimate your chain gun junk. spinning up. Oh, here we go. Here we go. Here we go. Whoa. One. There is no reason good we did that one. <laughs> Two. <laughs> that was just a tracer round to get on target. Oh, now right, here right. come the blurt bullets. <laughs> Socialism no more prescribed Joseph Stalin and his secret police and shuttered churches than Christianity prescribed the Spanish Inquisition. Which is just not to blame a school of thought for the organization that surrounds and manifests around it. Yeah. Necessarily, yeah. Yeah. And he's like, a lot of people hate socialism now because Joseph Stalin murdered a bunch of people. Those things can be separated. Socialism didn't make him do that. He chose to do that. (laughs) Right, and just like couched it in statements that related to socialism. Exactly. Yeah. One of the most impressive ways to tell your war story is to refuse to tell it, you know. Yeah. Which yeah. is why for a long time he didn't want to talk about Slaughterhouse-Five. I mean, I'm sure he's joking. It's also because of the deep pain. <laughs> but I like that he – well, because the quote right after that is, of course, another reason not to talk about war is that it's unspeakable. But I like that he's also like, plus, chicks dig it when you're like, no, I can't talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> you yeah. know, the truth can be really powerful stuff. No one's expecting it. Yeah. We are all addicts of fossil fuels in a state of denial, and like so many addicts about to face cold turkey, our leaders are committing violent crimes to get what little is left of what they're hooked on. Man. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, remember when there was a whole second Iraq war? Oh, yeah. man. <laughs> We've squandered our planet's resources, including air and water, as though there were no tomorrow. So there isn't going to be one. <laughs> Just well-phrased shit, man. <laughs> so eloquent. good. Uh, just describing mailing a letter as, I fed the pages to a giant blue bullfrog and it said ribbit. He's talking oh, about yeah. putting his manuscript in the blue mailbox on the street corner. Yeah, I think for some reason I thought that repeated, but I don't think it does. I think it's from this. It's, it's from great. this. It's yeah. pretty dope. It's so great. Here comes a long one. Killing industrial quantities of defenseless human families, whether by old-fashioned apparatus or newfangled contraptions from universities, is the expectation of gaining in the expectation of gaining military or diplomatic advantage thereby may not be such a hot idea after all. Does it work? 
Its enthusiasts, its fans, if I may call them that, assume that leaders of political entities we find inconvenient or worse are capable of pity for their own people if they see or at least hear about fricasseed women and children and old people who look and talk like themselves, maybe even relatives, they will be incapacitated by weepiness. (laughs) So goes the theory as I understand it. Anyone who believes that might as well go all the way and make Santa Claus and the Tooth Fairy icons of our foreign policy. Yeah. Yeah. Why does he capitalize Santa Claus and not Tooth Fairy? Oh. Is it a respect thing, or can a grammar Nazi explain to me on Twitter? Yeah. <laughs> what a misogynist. No, no, I'm just saying, is the Tooth Fairy like a title, but Santa Claus is a... I always thought the Tooth Fairy's name was the Tooth Fairy. Right, I think of it as like... Does the Tooth Fairy have a proper name, and Tooth Fairy's... T- anyway. <laughs> uh, oh, he quotes Lincoln... <laughs> Talk discussing Polk when Polk was president on Polk's decision to go to war. And this is just, Vonnegut is really good at cherry-picking Lincoln quotes to prove that, like, man, no one can talk worth a damn anymore. Yeah. Like, these are speeches he rattled off. And I'm not trying to bag on any particular president. Compare it to any of the past ten presidents. It's insane how eloquent Lincoln was. <laughs> yeah, no, nobody's on, nobody's there. Yeah. yeah. So this is just when he was a senator. So imagine if this was, like, someone who didn't want the Iraq war to happen and they come up in the Senate and they say, trusting to escape scrutiny by fixing the public gaze upon the exceeding brightness of military glory, that attractive rainbow that rises in showers of blood, that serpent's eye that charms to destroy, he plunges us into war. Yeah. (laughs) And then the Vonnegut quote after that is, holy shit, I thought I was a writer. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, this is a point that he made before and we skipped it by accident, like it fell through the cracks, so I definitely wanted to make sure to mention it this time. Crazy historical fact I did not know. What made Mexico so evil back in the 1840s, well before our Civil War, is that slavery was illegal there. Remember the Alamo? Yeah. That was fought to keep slaves. Like, because <laughs> that was the contention. Uh, yeah, anyway, also, shout in, out to our Texas fans. And in American history, there's like a weird bind that the terrible Southern racists found themselves in in the 1800s because like they wanted land to the South to make it slave areas, but also it was full of people who were not white. And so they didn't want those people. They, they didn't know what to do. They, they didn't, were like, right. uh, my racism is conflicting with my racism. Our Mexicans like, I don't know what to, <laughs> yeah. Oh, slave owners or slaves? Do we have to invent a middle thing? Yeah. yeah and like, like the Caribbean, they were like, but it could be, but it would be, uh, like they, <laughs> it's really weird. Kill them all. All yeah. right, next. <laughs> talking about the owners now. Right, right. <laughs> Quote, our leaders are sick of all the solid information that has been dumped on humanity by research and scholarship and investigative reporting. (laughs) They think the whole country's sick of it, and they could be right. It isn't the gold standard they want to put us back on. They want something more basic. They want to put us on the snake oil standard. Yeah, and that Gesser's Junk, I remember it being amazing when I read it as a kid and like it's it's just even more chilling now yeah. like it's happening <laughs> and last but not least be, just to prove to myself that even he knows he's fallible those of us who had imagination circuits built can look in someone's face and see stories there to everyone else a face will just be a face and there I've just used a semicolon which at the outset I told you never to use <laughs> it is to make a point that I did it the point is rules only take us so far even good rules Constitution (laughs) (laughs) needs an update, in my humble opinion. (laughs) In his, too, he proposed new amendments. Yep, and that's that. Those are all my blurts. Those are the blurts? All right. Since they're fun to do, I think we should do a segment called Recurring Characters Update. These were the blurts of our lives. The recurring character is Kilgore Trout. 
Okay. Fantastic. Let's also do a segment called <laughs> Kurt Cameo. Whoa, whoa, Cameo. No, Alex did a show. <laughs> uh, Kurt Vonnegut threw out the book. It's his essays. Great. I just enjoy okay. those segments. They Great. bring me glee. Was, yeah. It yeah. was like a nice uh, palate cleanser, just popping a couple pillow mints real quick. <laughs> yeah. Onto the sorbet. And the sorbet is a segment called Vana what? This sorbet is gonna Vanna, taste what? like shit because this is the Vanna, stuff he said that uh, we don't what? think is legit. Vana <laughs> <laughs> one. And uh, yeah, I think we we hit a few of them as we went. Uh, in particular, the way he talks about ladies in one section is uh, uh, not so great. And also uh, like gay, uh, gay people and yeah. uh, uh, the transvestite hermaphrodite thing about semicolons is dated. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and I called out other ones I have problems with. I'm just going to say the ones that I haven't mentioned yet. Uh, he says of where he lives nowadays, I live very close to the United Nations, so there are all these funny-looking people there. Hoi! <laughs> Hoi! <laughs> he also says, uh, it's tough to be a human because there's all these games on Earth that make you go crazy, even if you weren't crazy to begin with. Some of the crazy-making games going on today are love and hate, liberalism and conservatism, automobiles and credit cards, golf and girls' basketball. What's wrong with girls' basketball? <laughs> I just, that's out of left field for me. Well, I, especially he was attempting, and he started as early as 2001 to, to try to write If God Were Alive <laughs> Today. To play girls' basketball. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he wanted in. <laughs> no, he, uh, I feel like every stand-up comedian of the early 2000s had a WNBA chunk. Sure. They were like, what's, it, what's this, the New York Liberty? What? It and became like, the fundamentals like, of comedy to discuss the fundamentals of WNBA. Yeah. Right, right. And so I think, especially with him trying to write a book about a stand-up as he wrote this, he, he I don't know, it's probably just like, a punchline that felt natural to him. Even though, come on, WNBA is fun. Sure. Blame Gil Berman. <laughs> it's Gil Berman's fault, yes. That's all I got. Were there more from you? No, I didn't have a ton. I Broadly, I also, I, I said a little bit before, but like we're reading a book by, an, at this point, an 82-year-old man. And as we said with all these Manawats, we're not casting too much judgment. We're mostly picking him out. Uh, that especially with him at this age, at this advanced age, he's like doing pretty good. You know, I think what we're doing is validating fine. the fact that it's good to feel that we as a whole community are trying to grow our empathy as time goes forward. Yes. And even the people that inspired us to do so in the future will be more empathetic than them and they'll become problematic. And I hope that trend continues. Yeah, me too. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. if exactly. in a thousand years people think it was crazy barbaric that I ate meat because no one does anymore, I'll be like, yeah, it's a fair point. I probably could have tried harder to not eat meat, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, really. Yeah, exactly. yeah it's I fine mean, for stuff to get better. It's good, in fact. <laughs> and, it will, and we've gotten to see him improve across his life. For sure. In a lot of ways. And yeah, I like the idea of a swim of what? Yeah. Where we're talking about oh, just you eating meals. Mm -hmm. like. <laughs> <laughs> My well, yeah. epitaph will read carnitas quesadilla. <laughs> That's your order just all the it's time. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That sounds great. No, it's not an epitaph. It's a request that people bury a carnitas quesadilla <laughs> at my grave once a month. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to have the best pilgrims. Yeah. They're going to smell so good. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, uh, that I think that transitions very naturally into a segment called The Meat. Oh, it's the best Freaky. segue ever for the best Freaky. episode of the best show about yeah. the best author. <laughs> Our segue skills peaked. We just did it. Yep. That was what? peak segue right there. <laughs> um, and yeah, this is a... Uh, I mean, See, carnitas is meat. Is that <laughs> just... That's what makes it for me. Yeah. 
I mean, it works on a lot of levels, but that's the one that got me. Right, because it is right. literally. Yeah. Uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah. 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 <laughs> it's I fun mean, being here with you, Alex. That's fun being here too, man. <laughs> I, I, yeah. I mean, I mean, this book, it, it, it feels like I reread all his books, and uh, that makes me think about how much fun I'm doing it is. This show. It's almost like and a very good him. clip show. It's yeah. like the Seinfeld finale that had all the clips. Yeah. But also, but if if show. they went out and really did some new good chunks in mm-hmm. it too, like yeah. and uh, and yeah, I think and like I said before, that quote about that quote from his dad about castling, like I think this book is more thoughtfully structured than I had thought probably the first time I read it. Like yeah. I, th- I think there is some thought and care into what lands where, mm-hmm. um, especially because he like my theory is he wants to effectively restate everything before he dies. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and he does. Not a bad effort if that was his goal. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any other any other meat? Meatwise, I have one, yeah. He says in this book, no matter how corrupt, greedy, and heartless our government, our corporations, our media, and our religious and charitable institutions may become, the music will still be wonderful. True or false? <laughs> I am getting old, and as part of getting older, I'm like, yeah. Less music is good than when I was younger. Oh, and that's just a yeah, part of yeah. growing up. But I just don't I don't think that there's necessarily a guarantee that music will always be good. Well, yeah, because he does he does seem to think that there's a inverse relationship between how well politics is going and how well music is going. Like right. the worse the world gets, the better the music will be and, and Exactly. And I don't reverse that. See that trend. That's all. Because also, it sounds like you're self-aware of the thing that I think we all do, where like whatever we listen to in our teens and our early twenties is the best. Sounds thing. better because and it's just the way it is. It's just literally because like there's more dendrites in that neuropathway because you've listened to it so many times. Yeah, yeah it yeah. releases more of the chemical <laughs> that makes you like music. Yeah, <laughs> I think he's someone who wanted to be excited about new like culture. He he was opposed to new technology, and yet technology but excited about new culture. That's what I'm getting at. Is yeah, all new. Weird. The vast majority of new music that is the most popular embraces technology to an extreme. Degree, like yes. I wonder if he would think current pop music is good. I want to play. Yeah, him. I think like, you're right. Yeah, Swift Taylor Swift's new album. Be like, want to stand by that quote? <laughs> well, especially so much of the great new stuff. Like as a lot of people have pointed out, but if you've heard that podcast dissect, which does a lot of breakdown of the exact sampling that goes into Kanye West or Kendrick Lamar, like uh, so many of the best musical advances of the last ten years or so since he's uh-huh. been gone have been like sampling based and tech based in particular. Like there's gotcha. still good guitar driven bands. So any, I'm just to say that I think he would not. He would be upset with the music because it's too technological yeah he, uh, yeah and, and and also he would not down with the auto-tune yeah, yeah. Of music for sure <laughs> i mean we've already largely passed that but that would have triggered him i bet <laughs> yeah he would have really hated it yeah, yeah. well that's and I, I don't know if i agree with it necessarily either yeah it's it's also a thing where the internet is how i've discovered most all music other other than classical and jazz. Well, so I'm totally, so yeah. In my head, music's gotten way better because the internet's improved my discovery ability. Obviously, there's tons of bad unintended side effects about the internet, and we're still in the early phases as a worldwide society of processing them out of the system. Yeah. Not that well, it'll ever be perfect, but I bet the internet, the negative side effects are diminished over time. But uh, just like how TV improved or any new medium. But for a dude whose main thing is we need bigger extended families, it's crazy how he couldn't make that leap <laughs> of like, the internet's pretty good for that. Yeah. Like the internet is actually how you could make a real connection with a real person you might not otherwise get to know based on shared values and shit. And 
Like my dad has a robust social life based on the internet and has helped and been helped through connections through like that extended family stability that Vonnegut wants everyone to have. Yeah. My dad has that from all of his furry friends because he's in the furry <laughs> community. And like if and he loses his job line. and has to move, two dudes in bear suits will come help him move, you know, and he wouldn't yeah. have met them otherwise. The internet does build community. It's insane to say that it doesn't. That's all. Yeah. And it well it also and it it did that as early as his lifetime, as early as Monica's lifetime. And then also he died like right before social media kind of hit a critical mass of being a yeah. thing. Like right. cause I think he he would have needed to build community through like message boards and emailing and right. stuff. And, and of course you'd say so much of the communication yeah. is fake and hollow. And of course so much of it is, but we all know at this point that a bunch of it's also very genuine. Like you meet true friends and yeah. uh colleagues through the internet all the time that's not unusual yeah yeah <laughs> you even make a few vana friends whoa hey guys we're a little down from peak segue but not much <laughs> that yeah. was great I, I, it's, I suppose that's all the meat huh maybe let's get into a next segment called kurt vana grades it's the last scripts, grade scripts, scripts, on the scripts, last scripts, day scripts, it's scripts, time for scripts, vacay scripts, scripts. End of school. <laughs> Our semester ends in like late January. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, my I always blew off school after I got my first grade on a project. Isn't that when school's over? Yeah. You get it, yeah. a grade and you're like, got my grade. I'm out. Cool. Thanks. Yeah. I got to go race motocross bikes. <laughs> you were so cool. <laughs> yeah, I was. <laughs> um, this uh, book, Vonnegut, did not give it a grade uh, like many of the later ones. Uh, he did not. I think I would give it about a B plus. I would rate it pretty highly for what it is. No B way. plus. B plus. Written down on my notes. Team not B fabricated. I really wanted us to be in the pocket on the last episode. I'm glad yeah. we are. And there we are. Yeah, because we skipped a lot of even the lines that are the best because you've heard them in previous episodes. Yeah. But as a standalone book, it's phenomenal because it's a clip show of all the best things he's ever said. <laughs> yeah, and like thoughtfully put together and very modern and kind of It would edge. be an A if it were all original. I, yeah, that's the only oh, reason I like docked yeah. at points, yeah. Yeah, it would be well it would be like a gr- almost a great work of essay writing or philosophy or something if it was just a standalone. This is everything I think. Oh know, man, if he it. had been able to spool out this many insights when he was like 29 and this was just an essay collection, it would be like the greatest essay collection anyone <laughs> was ever able to put together. Yeah. So we only dock it slightly because it's like you did have 82 years to think it up and you said a lot of this before, but it's it remains very good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, and certain chunks that are even new, like the Guessers thing, are so good that it, it really yeah. raises it up. Because we have done other essay collections of his and rated them less highly because they, I think, either were somewhat repetitive too yeah. and also maybe didn't have as quite as many gems. It's like a Gaffigan special. There's some old stuff, some new stuff. Oh, wow. You still so like Hot Pockets, but you've heard it before. <laughs> and the new chunk is good. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the whales bit. I mean, he knows how to tell his jokes. Like Absolutely. He does the audience voice and the, the yeah. rhythm. And, yeah. <laughs> and talking about eating. And, I think he's even done that meta joke, yeah. Hot Pockets, I've heard this before. <laughs> I think he, his, like, he calls himself out on it. <laughs> Oh, he's the best. Yeah. Uh, wait, no, he's not. Kurt Vonnegut is the best. What <laughs> yeah. am I saying? Welcome to Kurt Vonnegut. It's about Kurt Vonnegut, <laughs> the greatest stand-up comedian of all time. <laughs> Gil Berman. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm glad I'm glad we graded so, so accurately together. Speaking and, uh, of coming together. <laughs> go on. Sorry. Oh no, I well, won't go there. <laughs> <laughs> let's go straight into a segment called Related Reading. 
Read, read, read. This was the worst segue I ever made. (laughs) (laughs) Look, you got the best of segues. You got the worst of segues. I have three for this one. I have three. And they're pretty straightforward. Cool. Yeah. Minor, arcane, and obtuse. You must answer a series of riddles. No. Also fairly straightforward. Yeah. Uh, well, one of them is, he he sort of calls it out in the book, but it's a lot of Mark Twain. It's a collection called On the Damned Human Race, and then also a piece called Letters from the Earth. And Vonnegut talks about it, and it really is the perfect, it's the Mark Twain version of this. It's him doing essays about how the world is late in his life, which in Twain's life was the Spanish-American War and the Philippine Insurrection, and uh, also a chunk where uh, Satan is cast down to Earth. And it's it's fictional, but Satan writes letters back up to heaven while he's down on Earth saying, can you believe life is like this on Earth? Ha, 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 ha. And it's very good. I was going to save this for last, but I'll bring it out now because of segue power. Oh. Uh, Twain, I'm going to recommend the recent re- recently released, a couple years ago, because he had it uh, legally like sequestered for 100 years after his death, I believe, Mark Twain's autobiography, Yeah, which is in three volumes. I've read two of them. I haven't read any of it. It totals out of 2,300 pages. Oh, man. Because this show is ending. Twain is someone who I think Vonnegut would agree is very much like him, one of the greatest thinkers, humanitarians, and authors, and wits of his time. So that should keep you busy until we get another podcast rolling. Yeah. Like before Alex and I get back on here talking about whatever we're going to talk about next. Yes. I want you to have read all 2,300 pages of Twain's autobiography, okay? That's Get your homework. Get to know the guy. Yeah. That should, uh, that should hold the, be- the little SOBs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I want to say, I think I said it on the beginning. Like, uh, my the family tree in my head is Twain and then Vonnegut and then, then Carlin, Saunders. Maybe, or, oh, Saunders, uh, yeah, But sure. also, also some Carlin's. Carlin's yeah. a cousin. But, I, but yeah, Twain and Vonnegut are right in line. Yeah, with Bill Hicks is... A weird cousin that comes to the reunion every 10th year, yeah. <laughs> Voltaire's like a crazy grandfather. Grandpa, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's a great No thing. women. That's a great thing. <laughs> <laughs> no, no women in the family. No, no. no one knows how they reproduce. <laughs> Futures female men need to shut up for a while. That's a really, that's a really good Vonnegut takeaway I agree with. From oh, Blue yeah. Day. Yeah, it really is, yeah. Uh, yeah, he was ahead of uh, his time a bit on that, too. Like, the yeah. world is starting to say that now. Certainly. for yeah, yeah, he said the future is female in his subtext before that became a slogan. <laughs> yeah, in the 80s. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, I'll just do my other two do together it. because they're the edited collection of Kurt Vonnegut's letters, and they're the Kurt Vonnegut Encyclopedia. Encyclopedia is edited by Mark Leeds. The letters are edited by Dan Wakefield. They both knew him in life. Those are both invaluable things for the entire making of the show and also for knowing everything about Kurt's books, like all the canon and stuff, and also knowing where his head was at and what he was doing as he created thing after thing. It's great. Yeah, and if you haven't checked out uh, our bonus episode, it's an interview with Mark Leeds. Yeah. And that was fun, yeah, so yeah, listen yeah. to that. He's great. All right, oh, wait. Was and those two? are the rest of mine. Okay. Yeah, that's it. So then my other two, first is Sophisticated Lady by Duke Ellington, which is, he calls out as his, the best song. Yeah. Like how he calls arbitrarily think, this is the best joke. This is the best song. But man, it's really, really, really good. Definitely listen to Duke Ellington's Sophisticated Lady again, because you've probably heard it in passing, but listen again. Yeah. And then uh, something will keep you busy a little longer. In that chapter, he also talks about how phenomenally impactful African-American sounds have been outside America as well. And he, case in point, he talks about like being in Norway and seeing a band that's like the three whitest motherfuckers you ever saw. <laughs> and he's like, and they played some of the best rock and roll I've ever heard. And you know that it's not like from their ancestors and their homeland. Yeah. It's amazing the impact. The blues scale is the dominant form of music and it brings so much joy in so many forms to everyone all over the world. And it, yeah. it's like just so great. So I want to highly recommend my favorite rock band that's the whitest possible people ever. <laughs> 
who obviously worship classic rock and rhythm and blues. They're called Grupo Sportivo, G-R-U-P-P-O space S-P-O-R-T-I-V-O. And if you're like, don't know if you agree with me on what music is good and bad and you just want to get a sampling, I would highly recommend the album, Greatest Hits album, Back to 19 Mistakes. But they're a Dutch rock band. They cover lots of classic rock songs and do a lot of originals. And I think they're just the bee's knees. They're one of my favorite bands. Wow. If I just want to have fun. Just super fun. And they're Dutch. They're Dutch. And the guy's voice is so freaking weird. Get ready. (laughs) Do they perform in English? It's all, it's, I believe they did, uh, you know, Oh, Two both. versions, but yeah, Back to 19 Mistakes is all in English. They definitely tried to be global, so cool. their songs are available in English. Neat. Yeah. yeah. Check them out. And music, uh, like like Vonnie gets said in the book, it's uh, it's perfect. It's great. It's good. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> the uh, next, se- I think there's one segment to get into, which is Vonnegut News. The long and winding road. That's in honor of our leaving, I guess. <laughs> I'm the Beatle who's just doing a telegraph or whatever yeah, in the background. You didn't know. Uh, in a newsboy cap. Beaker from the Muppets was the fifth Beatle. <laughs> <laughs> Help, I need somebody. Me, 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 me. You know that cover of Meet the Beatles where all four of their heads are Meet very the organized? Beatles. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't where I was going, but that's great. <laughs> I was thinking their four heads very organized and then Beaker just flying through just the background Beaker, like yeah. antic on fire. Yeah, yeah, you know? Right, like, right. <laughs> the experiment's gone wrong already. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, the uh, uh, the main piece of Vonnegut news is uh, one of the Vonnegut guys, Michael Swaim, has a Patreon and it's called Small Beans and it's super wonderful. And uh, there's a lot of podcasting going on there and videos and other new things. Oh. And people should check it out. That's cool. I'll look into that. Yeah. One I of didn't the know luminaries of the Vonnegut Thank community you. is yeah. uh, Michael Swain, and he's working yeah. out there. Patreon.com slash smallbeans. We're putting out a lot of podcasts of our own and uh, videos coming soon as well, thanks to the generous patronage of patrons at Patreon. Yeah. <laughs> That's very exciting. Yeah, so yeah. go patron that, and I'll <laughs> patreon <laughs> you later. <laughs> Small beans. <That's, laughs> I don't know what those verbs mean Ooh, in those contexts. If you'll indulge me, I realize <laughs> something stupid we should have done that it's too late now that I do I do want to get the word out on is <laughs> all of our podcasts, we do a number of podcasts, and they're all under the feed called Small Beans. Because it oh, turns yeah, out yeah, you have to pay there. separately for each feed. So like one of our shows is called Frame Rate. Don't look for Frame Rate. Just look for small beans, yeah, tiny little yeah. beans. <laughs> yeah, it's not too late to say that. Yeah. That's, uh, this is the time. Good. Yeah, yeah, great. Done. Um, I've said it. You yeah. can't take it back unless in editing you do. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and yeah, I mean, this this is still going to be a feed that you're subscribed to. If uh, We hope you are, and uh, and it's still a thing, and uh, we, we don't know what's next with it exactly, uh, uh, other than my in- intense gratitude to all of you listening, and in particular to Michael for being uh, the best Bona friend. And ever. to you, sir. It means so yeah. much that you invited me, of all people, to join you on You're this the, journey. Yeah. Thank I don't, you. Well, I, yeah, I don't know if I said in it early on that, like, wh- I think when I met you in life, I was wearing a Sirens of Titan shirt, yep. and you pointed to it and said, I would make a movie of that. Yeah, yeah that's the great. movie I'd most like to make, adapt, yeah. for sure. Yeah, and I was like, this guy gets it. <laughs> and then guy. Robert Evans was like, you know, I have the cover of Sirens of Titan tattooed on my body. Can I be the Vana guy? And you still went with me, and I really appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. a true story. I'm morally opposed to tattoos, so, I, I, you know. It's that just... was it. I remember you yelled, you've soiled your body, the body <laughs> Yahweh gave you. <laughs> uh, love you, Evans. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry, man. <laughs> but, yeah, I hope we do more on this feed. I'm down, man. 
Yeah, me just too. give me a ring. Yeah. I'll be waiting. <laughs> <laughs> well, and we'll and we're both on social media, and you can find us there. And and uh, and and I guess in the meantime, if, if this isn't oh <laughs> no, let's do it right. Do we want to do unison or first part, second part? What? Because this is let's the last do, one. We got to ride unison. out. Nice. Let's unison it. Unison. All right. All right. Yeah, it'll be three, two, one, go. And then All we'll right. Okay. Three, two, one, go. If, if this, this isn't nice, nice I, don't I don't know, know what, what is. is. Nailed it. Yeah.